All right, here we go. Episode six of the as yet to be named, but narrowing in on a name podcast here with Devin Nathan. Uh, episode six, we're going to p- kind of pick up where we left off. Um, this awesome website, WTF happened in 1971.com. And we'll try to go through it. Um, it's a huge, important point to make. And it, you know, extraordinary claims against central banking and what people just take as a given. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And so, I don't know, to the believers, it'll feel like beating a dead horse. But to people that haven't really looked at this, um, I think it warrants some longer conversations. And so I made a list of kind of like 17 little points that we wanted to make uh, that the website makes for us. We'll skip over some charts because they're either redundant or not quite as relevant, or you could argue that it's from a effect outside of central banking, but I made a list of about 17 different points we wanted to go through. And because of the foundations and the complexity of some of the early arguments, we only got through the first three last time, but we're hoping to get through the other um, 14, 15 or so here in, in about 45 minute episode. Um, but exciting things around the corner. We have ideas for a name. We've got ideas for a logo. Um, we're going to start posting these out um, on different platforms here soon. And so hopefully this is uh, a lot more acceptable and a lot more, oh yeah, intro music or ideas for intro music. So this is going to feel like a real podcast here real soon, which is pretty good for episode six, I think, but um, making progress fast. It's been, yeah. uh, been a super exciting start. And I'm, I'm excited to uh, get even deeper into yeah. each of the topics. We've got some, we started a list of uh, guests that we want to have on. Um, we don't want this to be an echo chamber. De- Devin and I agree on a ton. We've got some like, fr- like semantic disagreements here and there, but we lar- we agree on 95 plus percent of everything. So um, that gets boring after a while. I think it's one of my big complaints about libertarian or liberty oriented or Bitcoin oriented podcasts is it can really be an echo chamber sometimes. So I think the, my favorite podcasts are when people invite in the opposition and they have a civil debate debate about what they're talking about. So uh, a couple of the guests that we've got on the list are definitely not politically aligned with us, but they have the important part, which is they mean well, and they can have a civil conversation, um, unlike so many voices out there. And then we've got like maybe some pseudo celebrity guests on there too. We've, we've found out some cool connections Devin's got, and we'll see if those work out, but um, there'd be some, maybe some big names on so, but we wanted to kind of wrap up this monetary policy, central banking, Bitcoin journey that we're on and uh, maybe pivot to some more civil liberties issues a little bit later and expand what we talk about. Awesome. Um, well, uh, I think this is a great spot to, to kick it off. I think that the next topic we wanted to get to um, was just um, inflation taking off um, and what that what effect that that had on um, just like daily items that that you wouldn't necessarily think of as uh as having a large impact on your daily life but um the cumulative um when you add them all together the the impact is is pretty large um so um th- this first uh, graph that we're going on going over was the unit price of Campbell's con- condensed tomato soup um and uh so uh, just take it away uh, give me your input <laughs> on it I'll ask some good questions. Yeah. So the big topics that we hit on last time were how wages aren't keeping up with productivity, you know, technology and productivity improve. Saw these huge improvements and how much we can accomplish, but the wages didn't keep up with it and how um, that it leads to a lot of income inequality um, because of central banking. 
Um, the, the, the rich have disposable income to leverage their assets to stay ahead of inflation, you know, via the cancel on effect. And, and everybody else feels like they're working harder for the same standard of living, even though things have gotten a lot more efficient because of capitalism. Um, you know, our, our lifestyles aren't as nice as they should be. Um, even though we've got capitalism working for us, uh, we have central banking and inflation and uh, money printing just hammering down, keeping us down the the potential that we have. So uh, where people really feel that, uh, you might not feel it on an individual good level, but when you start to add things up, you, your monthly surplus is suddenly gone. And so in this graph, um, again, if you guys want to follow along with us, we're about a fifth of the way down the page of WTF happened in 1971.com. And we'll speed things up. Um, again, there were major points at the beginning that we wanted to expand upon, but we can, you start to get the pattern of these different graphs as we go. And so we'll be able to speed up. But I mean, for those that are just listening from 1895 to 1970, the price of uh, tomato soup was hovering around 10 cents and it was pretty flat. Like inflation wasn't really there. It costs the same for the longest time. And then we hit 1971 and the price of something as simple and as specific as tomato soup just takes off from 1970 to 2020. It goes from about 10 cents up to a dollar. Yeah. And so that's a, um, you know, that's an extreme increase. Uh, and when you think about, uh, you know, don't think of it as just Campbell's soup because, you know, each um, can of soup or can uh, canned vegetable um, probably um, mirrored this uh, to a degree. Um, and so you think about overall expenses on your groceries, uh, you add, you know, this up over the course of a year and you're paying, uh, you know, uh, 10x um, just for your um, average cheap food. And I think that that's the biggest key here is like Campbell's is a, a soup that, you know, the that maybe if you're richer, this is another advantage that you you, you might not see this as much, but um, especially in the poor communities that are living off of, um, uh, you know, the canned soups and uh, cheaper um, prices or cheaper products. And that this is really going to take hit an impact and uh, really affect their lives, even though, um, you know, they're the change in the work that they're doing is not, not any different. The, the amount of income that they're making, as we've already shown, um, has not changed that much. Um, they're now having to pay quite a bit more just to be able to eat the same amount of food. Uh, and that's uh, and it, quite a negative impact. And I love this exam, this chosen example, because it doesn't make any sense that it would cost more. If you strip yeah. away all the assumptions that inflation is good and supposed to happen and that there's a national debt grows and the money supply grows, strip all that away. And, shouldn't if technology has improved and productivity has improved like we just talked about shouldn't this be getting cheaper and easier farming has farming has gotten or yeah minimally flatline stayed the same but uh there's more automation so it should be cheaper and more efficient to like process these cans agriculture has gotten so much more efficient over the last hundred years or at least you know it still has since 1971 we get the yield per acre has gone up a lot since then so uh, I mean, uh, trucks have gotten more efficient, um, distribution systems for groceries have gotten more efficient. What is leading to th this price increase? There's only a f like maybe a few things that you could point to, but the obvious one here is money printing, inflation. Yeah. I mean, and the the argument on the left is that this is like the the greed of ca uh, the greed of capitalism, and that and that these companies are are looking to uh, are. Are taking these higher profits and and they're just um, you know holding them all to themselves. But 
if that were the case, then then why do you see this flat line? That's that's like to to say that greed didn't exist until yeah. like greed was invented in 1971. Yeah, it's wild. We might have lost you here for a second, but um coming back you with us yeah cool yeah i missed that last point sorry greed was invented in 1971 yeah yeah so Um, basically i was just saying that uh i mean that's essentially what this is what you would have to be arguing is that greed was invented in in 1971 and and that that is what increased the prices when um there there's a a pretty pretty critical change that happened in 1971 that aligns exactly with this increase. Um, and so you have to ask yourself, which one seems more logical? Um, that, that people got greedy all of the sudden in 1971? And could that also be um, formulated as a, a cost of printing money? Um, was that increased by the cost of printing money? Uh, and then um, if not, e- either way, this this is shown to me that it's very obvious that that this form of printing money um, it was at the expense of our future selves once again. And the, the corporate greed argument, the, the question I always want to ask that never gets asked and when I hear people make this claim is, in this case of Campbell's Soup, why isn't there anybody starting a small business and creating a can of soup? And charging 90 cents instead of a dollar and just undercutting that greed. We have a, a, a free enough capitalistic society that supply and demand is still somewhat in effect. And yeah, you've got like economies of scale bias towards Campbell's and against the startups and um, for agricultural subsidies raise the bar for new entrants and things like that. But there's still supply and demand. Like um, what's the other name of the major soup brand? Like a blue label instead of Campbell's red. Anyway, like why why aren't they in a price battle to just bring the cost of soup down? Because they'll cap like people aren't super brand loyal to soups necessarily. Why wouldn't they pay ten or twenty cents less for a can of soup, especially the lower income people, um, and drive prices back down? There's all kinds of arguments for why this isn't just simply corporate greed. And what corporations yeah. are losing money? Are they suddenly not greedy anymore? Because yeah, there are periods of time where they lose money. And I think corporate greed might play a large factor into this. And that's uh, where I think, uh, you know, like uh, taking this argument, it's not against the left and not against the right. Like these things are happening. And I do think that there is some sort of corporate greed. But like we have already uh, said before, when you print more money into the economy, it allows for more greed to exist because there's more money to be taken advantage of. Uh, and so when we've thrown all of this excess money into the system and the, when the rich have this advantage to get towards it, uh, that it's going to be, it's going to come at the cost of the average everyday person. Um, and, and at least more so than it was, it will come at the cost of them, but it comes at their cost as well. Uh, it comes at everyone's cost. Uh, you're yeah. borrowing from future potential you and they're out they're being able to outpace that um because of the advantages that they've set up for themselves um but those things are both bad uh, in my in my eyes but this shows that just in in one one graft how negative an effect of of just printing your own money and and uh, and what that can have on and little things such as food and I'll throw a bone to the corporate greed arguing people, but uh, spoiler alert, it still comes back to the central bank being the problem. Uh, yeah. Robert Robert Breedlove uh, makes a great point that uh, with 
legalize counterfeit, which is money printing, you have to move yourself out further along the risk curve than you otherwise would um, just to preserve your capital. People are forced into the stock market, forced into taking on more and more risk um, by buying stocks and uh, in investing in different things than they would normally have to just because they have to counteract the forces of inflation through money printing. And so when you incentivize an entire population to invest in certain stocks and take more risk, they're going to be seeking dividend paying or uh, share price growing assets. And when you do that, the people that are in charge of these companies are incentivized to maximize quarterly or yearly earnings instead of do what's best for the company over the next 50 years. So they're making a bunch of these short-term decisions um, at the consequence of the future to maximize short-term profits so that people will continue to buy their stocks um, so that they get a larger share of investment. And so I'm saying I mean, the point is startups uh, everywhere. Like the the when you go to Silicon Valley, what they tell you if you're if you're trying to start a, a startup is put as much money as you can into it at the beginning when you're first getting going. Uh, throw as mu- as many dollars as you can at it, um, and, and hopefully you'll strike big, and, and and hopefully your company will take off and your evaluation will take off. Um, but at what cost? Uh, are we really making better products? Are we really making more efficient systems? Um, those are questions that I think need to be asked. Are you, uh, wh- why are you having to take this risk in the first place? Like it's all it's a it's really well, nice to be able to make money when you're young and like make these risky investments. But why are people in their 40s, 50s, 60s looking at retirement still having to have this huge slice of the pie of their portfolio taking significant market risk? It's because the cost of living keeps going up. And we moving past the condensed tomato soup uh, specific example, um, this oh. cumulative inflation chart kind of makes the same point from um, but from a more global scale. It just backs up the previous data from 1910 to 1970. So those 60 years, cumulative inflation was 300 percent which is like still a lot, but more manageable. But like the central bank was created um, in the early 20th century. And so you still had uh, not a true gold standard from those 60 years, but there was still some kind of a peg to the gold standard. But then when we completely said dollars are no longer redeemable for any gold um, in 1971, inflation took off. Um, So 60 years to get 300% inflation. And in the 50 years since, there's been an additional 2,100 plus percent inflation. And I, I really encourage you guys to, to go take a look at this graph because it really it lets you visualize how extreme this change was. Um, and this is the consumer price index. This isn't some like tinfoil hat website. Like we and libertarians and hard money advocates would argue the CPI is a pretty bullshit like measurement of the goods and services and the actual measure of inflation for a lot of different reasons. So we're using like the metric that the central bank and the Keynesians like to use, and it still looks insane. It, it, it looks horrible. And, and to think about this because it's working on this multiplier factor and, and it's getting larger. At, at an increasing number so now it, it has gone from it has gone from this slowly moving upward curve to this um crazy increasingly uh, high upward curve um that's just going to get worse and worse and worse so where are we going to be in 10 years where are we going to be in 20 years um if we stay at this rate in 20 years are we going to be at a 4000 uh, um, 4,000% increase of inflation. Um, and then what, in fact, what effects does that have? Are, 
are we just going to like, are we going to be able to afford the cost of living um, just in general? Like, even if you're working a good, what we would consider now today, a good job, mm-hmm. are you going to be able to afford the just average cost of living? Uh, this reaches a breaking point at some point, like uh, in other countries, when they experience hyperinflation, they, they burn the cash in the street and they moved off of the fiat currency onto something else. But as the world's reserve currency, like we're going to hang on to it longer than we otherwise would because like we're the currency man and we're tied to a bunch of these other major national currencies. And again, we've played along to the detriment of ourselves because we haven't really had an alternative. Um, but then Bitcoin showed up and it's just an idea that hasn't spread as much yet. It's a well, pretty viable so. alternative that uh, as hyperinflation increases and looks more imminent, um, people are going to start looking for alternatives now that there is yeah. I think you can kind of see that on a micro scale now, like people are already starting to kind of get a little freaked out, um, especially when you get these little jumps in inflation, Um, people are starting to get freaked out. If people realized how the difference in inflation and between now and 1970 versus 1910 and 1970, if they um, understood those differences increases, I think that that would already be happening. I think people would really take a look at their current currency and be like, well, we're making a mistake here. This is this is undoubtedly going to end with something horrific for all of us. Uh, and, and it makes me question like, why do the richest people in the world even like this idea? What what is what is their end goal? Like it because they have to. I would assume that they have some knowledge about what's going on and and the risks that they're taking. Uh, are they not also afraid of this because it's also eventually going to cut into to their assets and and the. Uh, I mean, I guess they they assume that they will stay ahead of the curve. I, yeah. I don't know. Because they have so far, and they're not suffering. There isn't any real pain right now for the the super wealthy. Like, yeah, uh, yeah, okay. One more, like they didn't make quite as much. They wanted to buy another yacht. Like, I, I don't think it hurts them enough to seek out another answer. And they're playing by the rules that have worked for them their whole lives so far. And I, I think they will pivot to the rules that will work for them in the future. And they'll be closer to that because they have super high, um, high capability, high paid attorneys and financial planners. And when Bitcoin becomes viable, they'll jump ship. They're not loyal to the U.S. dollar. They're they're loyal to whatever strategy will increase their net worth. I think if they're rational, if they're rational, uh, and I think that they are. I mean, you would only you, you'd have to expect that most of them, at least, if they're not rational, that they're at least uh, they have someone on their management team of their money that that is rational. Sure, and is advising them in a rational way. I would sure. assume. Um, Graph below the one we were just looking at is interesting because it's a a longer time horizon and shows the same thing, the CPI, um, inflation in general. You see little spikes for the Revolutionary War, War of 1812 and the Civil War. It's funny how um, obvious those spikes are at those wars. Um, You know, things cost more during war because the economy is fucked up during them. Um, And what's but what's different about those little spikes is that the CPI kind of comes back down and levels off after those things happen. Uh, but the big change is when the central bank has created the Federal Reserve in 1913 in order to partially, partially in order to fund a bunch of uh, New Deal type um, policies and to fund us going to war. World War One, we see this big spike, but you see it not really come back down after World War One. And then you especially don't see it come back down after another spike at World War Two. And then all bets are off in 1970 when uh, we completely depeg from the gold standard. 
uh, inflation CPI just takes off. And this is by far, to me, the scariest of the graphs um, because it, it shows you how tying yourself to a strict standard, a, a gold standard, a Bitcoin standard, a, a fixed money, uh, how even no matter how much um, chaos happens in the world, eventually we were, we can rationalize it and we can get back to where we were. Uh, at least yeah. that's what the graph seems to show. Yeah. Uh, and then there's not even as much chaos as that happened in world war ii or in world war one yeah, hundreds of millions of people died in world war ii yeah uh, i mean and, and and also you know in 1919 the spanish flu like we, we've had yeah. some cataclysmic events that that should have really rocked uh the this consumer price index um and instead you always see it come back uh come back to the to the mean and and then you don't um, and then when you don't, it, it rises so far above it uh, that it would scare even the most uh, supportive of the fiat currency. Uh, I, I can't understand how anybody could look at this and and still be in support, um, understanding what this graph means, um, realizing that this means that your dollar in 20 years, in 30 years, has a, a very high likelihood of not being worth very much at all um, in the overall general public. And that should be an extremely scary thought for everyone. Yeah. I'm hungry for an explanation. That's not central banking. It just seems, it seems so obvious. Um, you could remove the years, you could remove the X axis in these last three graphs and point to 1971 on all three of them. It's not like just with these, these suggestive labels that you can see what's going on. Like you could remove them and still tell a story. That that's the craziest part is that it's every single graph that we go to <laughs> points to the exact same time, and, and this this crisis that we have we have rationalized this as normal uh, as this consistent inflation that we should just accept is is normal and, and okay. Um, it's it's like taught in schools is like this is this is how finance works. You need to outpace the first time you go see a financial advisor. They're working with you to see how we can outpace inflation. Um, yeah. Never question why. Why, yeah. why is there inflation? <laughs> why is there a consistent inflation? Yeah. Will, will there ever be deflation? Like, All right, guys, this is how you outrun the bear that's chasing you. And I want to put my hand up and say, why don't you want me to turn around and shoot the bear so we don't have to keep running? <laughs> Exactly. That's Wild. a it's a phenomenal analogy. <laughs> and it's not even as big and scary as a bear. It's so simple. I mean, yes. it's I mean, it would take this big shift, but it's I mean, the answer is simple. There's it, a there's a giant bullseye on the bear's forehead and it's an effective shot. This next. Uh, did you want to say something? I, I was just I, I'm just going to jump off of that as well. I and mean, it's just like it. it it's I understand. I think people's fear is like, OK, we, we've gone this long and we're this far. We've caused this much trouble, this much chaos uh, in the financial system. Like, can if we switch to Bitcoin, do these issues go away? I, and I'm not sure if they do, but they at least stagnate and we can go back to that flat line, even if that flat line is now set where it is now. Um, and, and that might be the case. Uh, at least that flat line is not going to continually increase. Uh, and whereas we know with fiat currency, we're going to continually f- increase over time. It, it mm-hmm. is not stopped. There's not been one dip, um, the entire time. And so 
I think your your only option is uh, it, it's either do this or your money, like I said, will be worth nothing in 20 years. Yeah, if the, if the car is driving towards the cliff right now, uh, how much Bitcoin will save the day or how much going back to a gold standard or even spending less money will, how much that'll alleviate the problem is a separate argument. Um, but right now, like we're objectively accelerating towards the cliff our foot is on the gas and it's pretty obvious like i haven't even encountered the slightest argument that would make a good case that uh that, that bitcoin's not at least taking our foot off the gas if not applying the brake yeah i'll strongly yeah. argue it slams on the brakes um but that's a separate argument can we at least agree that we should take our foot off the gas uh, for yeah, that that's the best way to uh, the best way to put it. it wh whether or not you believe that it can it slam on the brakes or even put the car in reverse, which would be you know the the sure. ultimate. Um, yeah. and, and I really think that it could. Um, and I and we've gone into that on other episodes of, of how that would affect how that would come into effect. Um, but like you said, it, we have to at least jump out of the car and or hit the brakes uh, oh yeah we, that's an important point out like yeah people opting for bitcoin uh if we can't get a consensus in the car that we should put our foot on the brake people are bailing like people are slowly bailing out of the car and that's really exciting because you used to not really be able to bail out of the car until 2009 yeah we were all, october to halloween 2008 to stay with the car analogy we were all locked in the car and now you you mm -hmm. have just now you have had the opportunity to finally hit the unlock button and it's working. Yeah. It just now started working. And so I would encourage everybody to uh, hit it as quickly as possible and get out of the car. <laughs> you want to keep barreling towards the cliff and go right ahead. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, what's cool is uh, you don't have to jump out and really hurt yourself all at once. You get to slowly, I don't know what's sticking with the analogy here. You get to uh, open your door and start inflating a raft or something for you, something yeah. soft for you to jump onto. And uh, you blowing in the air into this little raft or this little cushion is you just like slowly accumulating Bitcoin. Yep. So that when you do leap onto that raft, you blew up, it doesn't have to hurt. A hundred percent. This really, it, it's, I mean, it's not going to, if you switch everything to Bitcoin today, I don't think it would, the, the scariest part is the distrust in Bitcoin. It's not it's the a, Bitcoin system the oh, system no. the system is correct it, it's the it's the price volatility that would freak you out in the short term yeah it, the dollar is relatively stable compared to bitcoin right now but that's just because the market cap is smaller oh and the trust and faith overall as a culture um but trusting something having a, a a conglomerate of trust in something as a community does not make it the better choice and um, there's yeah, obviously, <laughs> there's a systematically better choice, and, and sometimes it takes a while for for everybody to understand that. Um, but if you can get out ahead of that um, and, mm -hmm. and be you know, the first one out of the car, uh, back to the car analogy, if you can be the first one out of the car, then um, I would I would greatly encourage you to to do that if you have the opportunity. But the great news is it doesn't. It's going to take less and. It's going to get easier and easier to convince yourself of it. If you're an early adopter, it's like this fringe risky thing. But as it becomes more mainstream, you'll just be able to use it. And I don't know if it was Robert Breedlover or another Bitcoiner, but it's like you don't have to understand how the car works to be able to drive the car. You're just going to be able to use Bitcoin and it's not going to you don't have to understand how a blockchain works and hash rates and um, Bitcoin mining nodes and hash rates and all these different things. At some point it's going to be so usable. You won't have to know how it works. 
You don't have to understand. Just, you use the internet all the time. You don't understand how HTTP works. It's, I was just it's about fine. to use the internet as an example. Yeah. I was about to say, like, I'm sure people were terrified of the internet when it first came, came about. And I'm also sure that there were plenty of companies that were very reluctant to use the internet uh, to increase their efficiency. They, they probably said, uh, we're just going to keep doing this the way that we did. And, and those companies ended up dying out. And, yeah. and um, there's a massive... A- there's a massive profit incentive to take this hard to use internet though. You're not really sure of the utility and make it useful and make it really easy to use Google, Apple, iPhone, all these different things. Um, there's going to be a huge profit motive to make Bitcoin really easy and really usable. And mm-hmm. then you just see adoption take off. I think. Just because simply it is a better long-term strategy. And, and when the more people that, that realize it's a better long-term strategy, uh, the the better the, the easier, like you said, the easier it will be to trust uh, to trust in Bitcoin as a whole. Yeah. All right. Well, we're pacing behind. Let's see if we can pick up uh, the similar point on this next graph here. The price of electricity, food, and fruit um, just takes off in 1971. And uh, these are other things that you think would get more efficient as productivity and technology increases. Um, All of these should cost less because we're better at making them with technology. And we see the opposite. We're we're better at creating electricity, or we should be more efficient at at honing and and creating electricity. And so for the argument of like um, the population increase and does that, there we have so many years on the back end of this data that show that there's no increase when the population was increasing at, at the same mm-hmm. rate, if not higher rate. Um, you get the baby boomers. Um, and, and so and that would be the only argument that I, I think people could come up with against it. And, and to me, that this graph really shows that, no, there's a, an exact point where this happens. And it's the same point that we've been telling you about the entire time. Yep. Uh, you go and this away. wouldn't be as big of a deal if wages kept up with all these prices perfectly. Then it would just be it would be annoying, complicated, like energy wasted on just rising prices and right. Like it's a bunch of economic calculations that don't need to happen in the first place. But at least we wouldn't feel the pain of it if wages kept up with these uh, rising prices in the CPI. But they haven't. That's our whole point, and that's where the suffering comes in. Um, next graph shows how um, the median house price in New York and Boston completely takes off right around 1971 there's a little bit of a lag kind of throughout the 70s but real estate really starts to boom and it used to track with median household income um, but it just it doesn't anymore they completely separate so the people with money can afford houses and the people without money can't or you have to have a two income household now i mean that Becoming even more and more regular. Well, this is household income. This is even accounting for. Oh yeah, that's <laughs> sad. Oh my gosh, that's incredibly yeah. sad. You would you would say probably at least half uh, of the people that um, today it's probably even less than that were single income households, and and yeah. now we have dual income households, and we still can't keep up with this. Think how much um, wider the spread would be if people if there was still only one income earner in the house. Oh, I mean, it just became impossible, and that's. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now what's going to happen next? 
we're going to have, you're going to have to live with another family to be able to afford to live in a house, um, which is like apartments. And, uh, you know, the chances of you being able to afford your own house in the future is going to be extremely low if we, if we stick with this system. And you're already seeing that. I mean, every, everybody knows that now you go to try to buy a house now and you can work a really good job, a really good corporate job. And your chances of being able to get a house before you're 30 is still relatively low if you weren't giving any money on the front end. Right. Uh, and, and so um, imagine that in 20 years uh, with this same increase, yep. uh, where, where are we going to be at then? We're either going to be living in this, you know, these community homes or, um, uh, the, you know, the other option is that we're going to be living in these tiny little shacks. Um, but uh, the chances of you being able to afford the same house you have now, uh, very low. Yep. The next two blue line graphs kind of illustrate the same point about the rising cost of real estate over time, how it kind of takes off at, at 1971. Um, there's a, a bar graph. So how long does it take to save for a house? It used to now um, lending requirements have changed and that's a whole different discussion, but even, you know, taking those into effect, it used to take two, three years to kind of save up for a down payment um, that you could feel confident moving forward with buying a house. In the 80s, it moved up to four. And in 1990, it was five and a half. And now we've been holding steady at about seven years to save for a house. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that doesn't just show that the price of real estate has increased, but there's probably less money being saved every month because the cost of everything else has gone up. Well, and you can also, so in the 2000s, we also introduced uh, new laws. Uh, so the, the reason why I believe this graph is skewed, we allowed, we introduced new laws that allowed for people to um, borrow for a house with less money on the front end. Yeah, it's, it's uh, gotten easier to get a mortgage in the last yeah. 50 years, but it takes longer to save. Yeah, that that right there is an oxymoron. Yeah, uh, it, P- PMI, PMI, private mortgage insurance, which allows you to put down a lot less um, in exchange for like this insurance that you buy because you didn't put a whole lot down, um, didn't used to be a thing. And now that's a thing. And it's still just to, to get people to buy houses more easily. And the entire housing boom, um, in 2008 was partially because banks were, um, placing bad bets and taking risks that they shouldn't have on giving people houses and easy lending, um, that they wouldn't normally have had if they weren't too big to fail and knew that they were, they could get bailed out um, by the central bank. They knew at the end of the day, we're not going anywhere. Um, yeah. Well, it, it might suck and a few of us might fail, but a lot of us have this airbag that we shouldn't yeah. have. And, well, and then the other ones that don't have the airbag still have to keep up with the Joneses. Um, and so they're still going to be giving out these loans and these risky yep. bets because if not, they're going to disappear. And so yeah. it, it's everybody to that standard. Yeah. Uh not just the ones with the life rafts. And so, it, yeah, it's great for the com- for the banks that had those life rafts, but the rest of them, you know, they ended up getting screwed mm-hmm. and, this, and they were screwed if they did and screwed if they didn't. Um, either way, they, they were going to end up dissolving. And um, that's kind of what you've seen. Yeah. After this, uh, after the real estate graphs, we're getting down to this gold and green graph here where um, here's a classic supply and demand as U.S. gold reserves um, decrease, the price of gold goes up. Um, there's enough smart people out there that value gold inherently enough. And, uh, um, you know, we're generally pro gold people. We just think Bitcoin's even better than gold. Um, but yeah, it, as the U S gold reserves go down, um, that should increase the supply available to citizens. If I'm thinking about that, right. But yet the, even though supply is increased, which would mean prices go down, prices of gold have gone up 
um, just because of the scarcity of it. I just, I don't know. Here's another there. point to our original video where uh, scarcity is an extremely important, um, an extremely important part of what how you conceive money. Yeah, looking looking at this problem from a, a few different angles, we can skip over the hyperinflation episodes and look at the occurrence of um, certain things that have happened over the last fifty years or so. Uh, it's funny how adjusted for inflation uh, in books wasn't really. It wasn't really a concept until 1970. And suddenly this entire industry of having to account for inflation shows up. Um, so basically there's virtually zero occurrences of the phrase adjusted for inflation in books um, over time. And then in 1970, it just explodes. There's all these books written, economics, and I'm sure financial planning, all these different things that have to account for inflation now. It's this, it's this mental and uh, mathematical burden that gets placed on an entire population of people. If you want to get tinfoil hattie, like, you know, there, <laughs> then you can get tinfoil hattie with that right there. And just, uh, the, they had to, um, they had to ex essentially indoctrinate the people into this idea of inflation. Yeah. Um, because they, they knew it was coming. And, uh, so they had to get everybody ready for it. Um, and if, and if, if you make a, a topic complicated enough, people will kind of throw their hands up and try to and stop trying to understand it. And that's, that's giving up power. Uh, the, yeah. the stock market and financial planning does not have to be nearly as complicated as it is. But um, that allows people that are already in there to be able to speak their own language and it makes it harder for you to get in. Uh, yeah. Same thing, same thing in medicine, same thing uh, in many of these government uh, run institutions. A few graphs lower, we'll look at currency crashes. There was a, a spike of currency crashes during the Napoleonic Wars. Um, that's, you know, early 1800s. That's so long ago. And then there were basically none between 1830 and guess what? 1971. Uh, there's this huge spike in currency crashes and they come down over the next couple decades um, to the mid 90s. But um, I, what happened in 1971 that would cause a bunch of currency crashes to happen when the biggest currency in the world completely depegs from the dollar? Any currency that was uh, tied to it or um, on the edge of survival at the beginning, just completely, completely crashes. Really crashed. Gee, I, gee, I wonder what happened. Wonder yeah. if it was the middle of the Vietnam War or <laughs> uh, Af Afros and disco. No, it probably wasn't any of that. Um, <laughs> it's the next one that we want to look at here. I think we can skip the next couple. Like federal debt as a percentage of GDP. Um, again, we see spikes during wars. Uh, the government taking on a bunch of debt to fund wars uh, and the the spikes were not super high um, before the creation of the central bank um, you know to fund world war one we see a big spike there and it's drastic um, it's and higher than the, and the u.s was making a lot of money in world war one too because we didn't even enter the war for the first few years and not only were we lending money to countries that needed it to survive but we were also creating a bunch of goods to sell to them. So it was a huge money-making endeavor for us for the first few years. But even besides all of that, we still took on a shit ton of debt mm -hmm. because we could, because the government could print its own money. So it just started issuing a bunch of money. So World War I, Great Depression, World War II, we see these spikes. Um, At least there's still some sort of justification that needed to be made because we were trying to get back to this gold, you know, the, the gold standard. And now there's the freedom from that. And yeah. so 
it was re- it was relatively restrained borrowing for those first few instances. And uh, federal debt as a percentage of GDP went down from the end of World War II down to about 1971 as the trough. And then we mm-hmm. see it just rise again. And we didn't even have these giant wars where hundreds of millions of people died where the, the first world nations are at war with each other and dropping nuclear bombs on each other. Uh, so even without these wars, we see this increase in federal debt as a percentage of GDP. And it's gone from about 25% in 1971. Now we're at... 70 over 75 percent projected to be 180 percent in 2050 yeah yeah sinking do you want to jump off or not literally i don't know what your ideal debt ceiling is but uh that just is going to prove that we're going to cross it very quickly (laughs) and how much this has been talked about recently how much federal revenue has to be raised just to pay the interest on the debt we've already have just the servicing the debt is becoming more and more expensive that'll lead to hyperinflation that'll lead to increased taxes yeah and eventually i mean that eats into each one of our paychecks as it increases and increases and increases and increases and everything else our costs are increasing and then our taxes are increasing so you can see what that does to your paycheck you can see what that does to your overall um, income stability it goes away you're you're getting it makes me crazy. The national debt isn't even a conversation in politics anymore. Uh, the no. Democrats don't bring it up at all, and the Republicans occasionally bring it up a little bit when it's politically convenient. But as soon as they get back in charge, they don't bring it up at all. And they don't. And they don't mind what they're saying. Like they, no. they don't. Take or, to a, they, they make exception, exceptions for federal spending for whatever project they want to spend it on national defense instead of yep. socialized health care. Um, that I mean, the next graph makes a point but the, maybe the scariest graph on this whole chart is the on this whole website is the national debt um not as not as even compared to gdp but the nominal national debt and it just explodes uh, it's relative relatively flat until about 1971 again and even in those early years it's somewhat restrained uh but it just it just completely takes off it's logarithmic yeah and that's the scariest part, the logarithmic, which means that it's not going to expand at this one plus one equals two. That that means it's going to expand at one or two times two is four, four times four is 16, 16 yeah. times, 16, uh, you know, and, and so on and so forth. And until we're at this point where it's uh, irrecoverable um, and and that we're we're chasing it fast and i don't think people realize how how quickly um it's going to affect the everyday person and, and that, so what's a what's a more practical way to get this back under control when it's spir- spiraling out of control at this huge rate are we going to suddenly convince both corrupt political parties that we should uh, spend a whole lot less money and, you know, work on work really hard for the next 50 years on paying all of this back. Um, is, is that likely? Is that possible? People's votes are completely dependent on how many empty promises they can be made for free stuff by their politicians, how many jobs that they can say that they're bringing to their district. And so all of that requires spending less money and less interesting, less sexy political promises. Is that more likely or is bailing on this system as it careens off the tracks or off the cliff um, and jumping to something hard? Well, and, and you, see, 
see these pro all of these problems that are continually getting larger and larger. Um, you see on both sides, they have different things that they can blame it on and, and different ways that they want to fix it. And they think, okay, we can just take uh, on one side, you take all the money from the rich and, and give it to the poor. <laughs> it, doesn't, it barely makes a dent. It, so and done even, the math on. even if you did that, give 30 years and we're, we're still all going to be in the same problem. Like we're all, we're all going to yeah. come right. It's not like this is a problem for everyone. This is not a problem, even though it doesn't affect the rich because they have they're able to outpace this issue. Um, it, it's unless not you, like once you tax them to death. Yeah, uh, but even if even then we you're we're all going to be equally equal, and we all make the same amount of money, but we're all going to end up eventually. This curve is going to end up um, enclosing on us, yeah. uh, and, and we're going to end up all. Um, screwed and it's going to be hard for any of us to afford uh, daily life yep that's right i think we go through a few more of these and then call it um, yeah. i think we the, I think we made the big important points here but i'm kind of scanning to find some of my favorite graphs here um they're they're all pretty interesting and all kind of they make good points around the points that we've already made um we've working federal, yeah, which one did you want to look at? We're working hours to buy the S&P 500. And it stayed pretty consistently at 30.9. And now we're at 100, yeah. uh, over yeah. 100 hours, over 100 working hours. Um, and so not only are we having to take more risk, move further out on the risk curve to uh, make up for inflation, but it takes longer to work, it takes more hours to make the money to go out on that risk curve. To even get there. Yeah. To yeah. even get to so you're working you... harder to take more risk just to preserve what you have. Yeah. That's that's a powerful point when you put those two together. Yeah. Just thinking about having to do all this extra work just to be able to take a high risk and it, when none of this is necessary. Yeah. yeah. This is Robert Breedlove's point that this is time theft. And so yeah. this is theft. Inflation is theft. A hundred percent. Because you don't have a choice and it takes away the only, the only marketable resource, finite resource you have is time. Exactly. And, and they're slowly. You didn't consent slowly. to any of this. Exactly. None, none of us decide, none of us personally voted for this. Now we might've voted people into office or whatever, but I think if anybody knew the effects of this and, and what they were going to be over time, not, nobody would have signed up for this personally, uh, especially at least anybody um, upper middle class and below, um, because this is going to eat away at every single one of our daily lives. Um, and, and we wouldn't have chosen to do this, but this is being forced upon us and we finally have this life raft uh, and you have to ask yourself like how seriously could i should i consider this life raft um, and and our argument is you should very highly consider it um because if you don't you're not going to have a choice you're you're either going to end up um poor and not poor you're not making money and not working uh, good jobs but you'll have plenty of jobs and you'll be working really hard um but you still won't be able to afford your groceries and your house to live in and your car to drive um and, and that's just a sad concept overall yep in, in an economy that's getting more efficient yep yep uh there's a bunch of graphs that show uh, uh 
how manufacturing is moving overseas because it just gets too expensive here and uh, outsourcing wouldn't be such a priority if um, if natural capitalistic economic forces were at work here. And uh, we're not necessarily against outsourcing. We're against forced outsourcing um, because yeah. the because of time theft through inflation. And one of the a cool graph or sad, but like interesting graph a little bit further down is the ideological positions of the major parties. And it was pretty polarized between um, Democrats and Republicans uh, early in the 1900s. And then it kind of converged and, and got more harmonious from 1940 to 1970. And then what do you know? They start dividing again. Um, and so when the government's this goes to show the more involved the government is in your life and when you leave the gold standard and all of the money, the most fundamental good in the economy is controlled by the government, um, the government is inherently much more involved in your life. Therefore, the decisions that the government makes is more consequential on your life. Therefore, it's more important to get the people that you agree with in to government to make the decisions that you think are going to benefit you. Um, but if the government wasn't as involved with your life, you this political polarization wouldn't be as necessary because those idiots in Washington aren't as important. So yeah. fundamentally get the government out of your life so that they just don't affect you as much. And then those little fringe issues where they kind of affect you here and there, you'd be able to opt out of the political system so much more easily. You can have but a they, social they're so involved that it's life or death right now. Because it, I mean, when you look at it on a chart, it really is becoming life or death and, and, and or at least good life versus not a yeah. good life. Yeah. Um, and, and people, I feel like can start to feel that. And as they start to feel that chaos uh, emerging, they, they look for something to blame. And it's it's everybody has a natural re reaffirming of their own beliefs. And when they start to feel attacked, their natural instinct is uh, I'm going to look at the other side and I'm going to see what they're doing wrong. That's causing me this pain. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you're seeing that on both sides and they have a point. They both have a point, but they're not looking at what actually is causing the issue. Um, and, 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 it, and it reinforces the two parties because so many more people are voting for the lesser of two evils instead of the best option because you have to vote for the lesser of two evils because it's so narrowly split. And if the other person, the other side gets voted in, then that's doomsday. So even though I don't like this side, I like them a little bit better than I like the other side. And this votes, you know, every election for the last 50 years has been called the most important election of our life. They keep using that over and over again. Um, as, as if that's still convincing. Um, <laughs> just to get in another just, group ball. It's <laughs> increasing political polarization and cementing the duopoly power instead of multiple political parties. A few more points here and we can wrap up is like in the economy in general, we've seen the number of um, financial companies, financial service companies, financial books, financial terms just explode since 1971 because it's got so much more complicated. The number of lawyers uh, per capita has takes Roth right at 1971. All these different accountants and lawyers to try to understand this complicated um, legal tax and financial jargon. Um, it created an industry for all these people. And this isn't like, yay, a lot more jobs. This is a broken window fallacy. Um, just because there are more jobs for lawyers now um, doesn't mean that they're put to the most productive use. That's just what's demanded at the time. You're not looking at what these people could have been instead of lawyers. Like people are smart. Um, and that example is shown here. The number of physics PhDs in the U.S. Uh, peaks at, guess what, 1970. And then it's like flat or down since then. Um, so there's all kinds of technologies that should be advancing with experts there. But all these experts are getting gobbled up 
just understanding this complicated financial and monetary system and all of the laws, legislation, lobbying behind all of it. It's It's just, it's a waste of human potential. It's an inefficiency. So beautifully put. Uh, And uh, I was going to go also in, to the the percentage of children born to unwed women, something that you would never think that a financial the the a financial decision like this would cause, um, and it, you see this huge increase again, right where it always is 1970, 1971. Um, and, and so the the chaos, the overall chaos that is being created in the culture from the from this decision is not only leading to your economic despair, it's also leading to your uh, relationship despair. Like you're, the way you look at even the person you're closest with, which is supposed to be like this person you're going to get married to, uh, you start having more fights and more um, fights about money. More, they're looking for a richer uh, person because they're trying to find some sense of security um, and because they're they're stressed and they're worried about the chaos of the future. I mean, all of these things can be pointed back to this decision that we made uh, the, to, to go off of a finite money system. The median age of first marriage was trending down until 1970. And then guess what? Turns right around and increases because people are financially insecure. Uh, divorce was divorce rates were growing steadily and slowly, but they start taking off in 1970. Financial stress is the biggest uh, cause of divorce. Um, yeah. Families with children in official poverty, single parent families that just explodes. Um, you literally can't. Have- you just mentioned. Uh, uh, while the number of children to single women uh, is growing, or I mean, while the number of women having children outside of marriage is growing, the number of children per woman is going down because you can afford less kids. Just like all of these bad social consequences that you would predict if you had to guess, like are all like tied to the same year. Yeah. And, and it makes sense. Start becoming more obese because food prices are going up. So they can't afford the same quality of food. Um, and so they eat less healthy food. And they, they buy, they, they have, think, they think in a conceptual way of, I need to purchase the most calories for the smallest amount of price instead of I need working, to what's best for me long-term. They're working longer hours to make the same amount of money so that they, so they have less time to prepare their own food. So they're more likely to go through the drive-through. The number of administrators in the healthcare system and physicians due to all these health consequences increases. It just shows how this connects to everything. Yeah, it's it's crazy because you never think that one small financial decision that we made uh, communally, and I I think it is important that um, we all, even though we didn't have any play any part in it, uh, as a community we we took we took part in this. We have a chance to rectify that, uh, and we have a chance to to turn that around and save ourselves at this point, um, and. I just would urge people to go and look, at least look, do your research and look at this and, and see what you think about it um, based off of what we said, but more based off of what you see um, and, and just think about where do these graphs point, where are they going to end up in 20 years and where do you want to be in 20 years yeah. uh, and, and ask yourself which system is better. Uh, uh, do you like the finite money system or do you like uh, borrowing from the future and all of the chaos and hecticness uh, that ensues from that um, in your social life, in your financial life, and even in your rela- closest relationships? We've taken so many of these 
things just as normal and inevitable, but they're not. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this doesn't mean all Bitcoin tomorrow. Um, There's all kinds of things that we can do to improve the current financial system and still do Bitcoin long term. It's just just catch yourself next time a politician's promising something free. It's not (laughs) it's not free. free. It's literally impossible that it's free. (laughs) And stop and like (laughs) <laughs> and uh you know even if it's gonna disproportionately benefit you it's gonna the negative effects on the rest of society end up hurting you in the long run anyway so stop Every- falling for the, the false promises or even if those promises do get delivered um they're they're getting printed through or they're getting promised via taxation or even worse uh, so if you're, money printing if you're not paying for it now you will pay for it later yeah uh, and, and that's how you should think about free things it, there's no way for anything to be created for free and unless there's this giant group of people that really just wants to do good for somebody on their own dollar but then it's still not free it's on their own time their own you know somebody has to pay the expense of anything that happens Uh, and and that's just a natural law Uh, any anything is going to come at a cost Um, and and so when you're promised these free things just second guess it I think that was the best thing the most important thing that you said is really take a look at that and when someone says you know hey this is what we're promising you especially politicians for free uh, try to try to figure out what they mean by that and where that money's coming from and how that's going to affect us in the future as much as I love the environment and think climate change is a, a real problem, think of all the energy that people are placing into saving future generations from the world catching on fire uh, while we're ignoring the fire that's like right here behind us financially. Um, this is much more easy to put on a graph. This is much more like impactful. Like it's it's hard to fix the the planet's climate. It's so much easier, so much more measurable, so much more incremental. Like you get rewarded all along the curve of like making right decisions when it comes to um, fixing the financial system, but it might take a lot of technology or a technology breakthrough or world effort that you don't control. You know, China and India have to play along too. It's, it's such a more complicated issue. Um, but like kids and grandkids will uh, die because of financial consequences way before like the climate really becomes an issue. So put some of this like future thinking and this alarmism into central banking finance and hard money. And then it'll free up your time. It'll free up all of this extra time that you're having to work, all of this extra money that you're having to spend to actually attack those things. That, sure. Like the, Great. Fix the climate uh, that you're the the goal, overall goal, any whatever you care about, um, whether it's climate change or whatever that that core thing is that you. First, you need time and you need money. Uh, and we as yeah. a community need time and money uh, to be able to fix that. And, and so let's free a little bit more up for ourselves um, by by sticking to a finite uh, money system, uh, whether that's gold or, or Bitcoin. Um, but let's do something about it. And if there's something big here that we're missing, I'd love to hear about it. But man, it's, yeah. uh, a lot of times these graphs can just make a case for themselves. Um, I think that's a great place to end. Um, that wraps up the WTF happened in 1971.com argument against central banking and soft money and money printing and theft through inflation. So um, there's all kinds of topics that we can go into. We could go deeper on every single one of those, but I think that's a, a nice place to wrap it up. And I think we'll be back soon with episode seven. Yeah. And hopefully an announcement on a name and a logo and music and some guests coming here soon. 100%. That was awesome. All right. Talk to you guys later.